line out of the way. You win ugly 28-14 to 14 or whatever, but you get out with a W. And they did not do that. They refused to do it. That is true. Hand it off to—I know Heron's out, but come on. Brandon Sane, averaging over five yards a carry, he got the ball seven times. That is— that's the reason is Russell calling the plays? Is he the offensive coordinator? I don't know. I I would. Or his offensive so. line coach is the uh, is the offensive coordinator, taking a picture or taking a page out of Lloyd Carr's uh, playbook and putting Terry Malone up there. Yeah. <laughs> but that will do it for us this week. Oh, uh, it was, from back. Extra it was good to be back in the seat again. Oh, it was good. It was good. <laughs> As uh, we uh, thank you for listening, Michigan uh, sports talk here on WCBN. Uh, our next broadcast will be this Friday night. Or rather, this Thursday night, live from Yost, we'll have the Niagara game. And then Saturday, live from the big house, Michigan takes on Penn State. Once again, for Tony Bolton, I'm Andrew Side saying thank you for listening. Good night, and go blue. Navarre gives to Perry. Perry through the middle. Touchdown, Michigan! And the Wolverines! have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27 to 24, and the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor, WCBN.org. Grabs on to attempt it for the Wolverines. Holds her breath Ann Arbor as Navarre gets set. Place it down. Kick is up. It's long enough. It's good. It's good. Michigan wins the game. Michigan shocks Washington. And the Wolverines are victorious. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And uh, trying to stay cheerful in these suicidal times. Oh. I'm Jim Dwyer. Yeah. Well, changes in weather, changes of season, you know, that sudden, I think it was actually two weeks ago today when... We definitely got the message that summer was over. Uh, on the good side of uh, the equation, uh, Wednesday it's supposed to be in the mid-60s and sunny. So get your shorts on. It's a little uh, splash of Indian summer, and take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, it's a good southwesterly system good. for the last day or two. Good to go out and get those walks. I have just a discussion going on in the lobby here about the sort of miniature fall study break oh yeah uh-huh. which apparently has its origins and uh numbers which uh seem to bear out the fact that uh depression stress and collegiate suicides uh, were at their highest at this time of year but uh going outside and walking around is part of uh remaining uh, healthy happy happy and uh, hopeful yeah and by the way i'm wearing shorts right now and there's uh, i got short sleeves on there's uh, some evidence uh, from a, a study that they did in Scandinavia many years ago that there's a, uh, a vein behind the knee that uh, they use for, sui- for depression um, 
medication, so to speak, in the Nordic countries because, of course, they're way, way north of us, and they get very little sunlight in the sum in the uh, uh, winter months. And Indeed. sunshine, um, at least adequate amounts of it, 20 minutes to 30 minutes every day is good for you. That's how you get vitamin D naturally. Um, sunshine is good for you. Now, too much sunshine is a different story. I wouldn't recommend the tanning booths. No, in fact, recent evidence has shown those to increase your likelihood of getting skin cancer by sizable magnitude. Yeah, and you get those moles in uh, weird places. Right. Uh, so don't go into those things. Those are actually cancer booths. <laughs> uh, and one wonders, uh, given the proliferation of suntanning booths in the last 20 years, what uh, some of the skin cancer rates are going to look like uh, 20, 30 years from now. If, uh, if not sooner, uh, scary stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you if you live in uh, the Midwest uh, part of the nation, uh, enjoy Indian summer for yeah, the next couple of days. It's a beautiful time of year, even if it is a little And it's darker. amazing how green the leaves are, but I heard an interesting aspect that this is one of the consequences of more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The leaves stay greener longer because of their robust growth during the summer from the natural uh, absorption of carbon dioxide. And, uh, yeah, the maples are starting to change, but that little window of the fall colors mm. that Michigan and uh, parts of uh, New England are known for, their tourist uh, attractions with the colors. I noticed it was snowing pretty briskly in the Boston area yesterday. Uh, oh, that's right. New England played a football game and a blizzard. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but obviously uh, one of the bizarre events of the, this past week was the UFO balloon boy incident. <laughs> Falcon, come home! Falcon. I, as soon as I heard, saw his name Falcon, I thought, that's kind of weird. Because I was actually watching a little bit of business news, and I flip around, and I w w was anticipating the baseball game, the afternoon baseball game, since the NL AL uh, finals are on uh, on hand, and I see CNN <laughs> with a camera covering... Tracking a balloon. Tracking a balloon, where there's a big breaking story, and then I start flipping around, and sure enough, all the cable news networks are following this like it's a big breaking story and i thought well this is strange is oj simpson in that balloon and that's what it reminded me of i was like this is the oj chase what is this you know i i thought to myself and we still don't know uh if he's in the basket yeah and i thought hmm i smelled a rat right away somehow uh, and when i saw his name was falcon i thought oh how <laughs> How interesting that his name is Falcon. He How has quirky. He has the name of a bird that uh, likes to wander and is a bird of prey. Soar the great heights. And actually has been utilized by uh, humanity for many de uh, centuries. As I've a, always wanted a trained falcon. A falcon that lands to, uh, on the shoulder. And come to my glove. <laughs> attack at will. Selectively, of course. Yeah. I was like the... Uh, the uh, the Raven in uh, the Dickens novel. Uh, well, I'm drawing a blank on his uh, his name, but anyway, uh, I'll think of it. it this inspired Poe's uh, famous 
poem, by the oh, way. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. So, somehow there was a connection between the two. Um, but, yeah, for the media to fall for this, and then it turned to turn out into a complete hoax. And then, of course, you know, when I finally came back to television two hours later, the boy had been found. And I thought, oh, well, he just cut the balloon and hid. But then the story got worse and worse. Well, and it shows that there yeah. is something problematic with our culture. I thought it was very troubling when it was announced that this moron out in California, I forget her name, we won't give her a brain damage award, but we know who we're talking about, the octuplets. Oh, yes. Decided yeah. that, oh, if I only I can score a reality television show. I thought, boy, that will be fascinating television. Watching eight infants. Well, I mean, it's been done. There's the other big celebrity non-celebrity reality show <laughs> we had our life ruined because we had six babies because of miracle wonder drugs and i'm not even going to say their names because wcbn listeners just don't give a damn because you walk past those things in the grocery store aisles all the time but there is something sick in the culture that is so obsessed with meaninglessness yeah i mean uh the fact that uh they're so desperate for a story that's going to be a big story that isn't really a story at all. I mean, no. there are important things which are grossly neglected by the media, mm -hmm. things that are complex stories that deserve more time uh, to explain background and context um, in a television format. That's a perfect setting. But no, we get these static shots of mystery balloons that might just turn out to be the human interest story of the year, by golly. Well, and I thought, what what can anybody do about that balloon that's yeah. moving quite swiftly through uh, through the air? I mean, it was it was just one of those, like, you know, call the Air Force, do something. And I thought, is this like an advertisement for Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> or is Kissinger making a final run to leave the country uh, secretly? Can we come up with... That might be a story. Can we come up with material that uh, catches the missiles in midair? <laughs> Anyway, it's obviously uh, turned into a criminal matter, and uh, frankly, if it was premeditated, and it sounds like it was, I mean, the kid blur blurted it out. We did it for the TV story. <laughs> like, oops. <laughs> Go to your room. That's right. <laughs> the mannequin spoke. Yeah. And I thought, uh-oh. And, uh, yeah, the gullibility of... The news networks. Of course, you know, Friday was probably a slow news day. I don't know. But uh, I heard over the weekend on the BBC, interestingly, about the complete lack of coverage of, of Afghanistan throughout 2007 and 2008 in comparison to the coverage of Iraq when the surge was underway. And, of mm. course, now <clears throat> the media has suddenly discovered that Iraq is no longer a story. And that Afghanistan is all kinds of things to talk about all of a sudden. And whether or not to, you know, go with the surge and what to do. And, of course, we've now got the news that um, there should be a runoff. And this, to me, is the perfect opportunity for the exit strategy. Indeed. Um, it is not credible at this point, regardless of... Who wins uh, the runoff of whether there will be a runoff or how that's even going to work, uh, um, why we would want to escalate our troop 
operations there when obviously the problem is in Pakistan and that Afghanistan is, is really kind of a hopeless situation. Well, the sort of week that it was in uh, Pakistan really tells the story. That I mean, that's been even more neglected mm-hmm. uh, probably by mainstream media. Um, and that's really where the war in Afghanistan is being directed from. Um, all the recent uh, events there really suggest that not only is the situation in Pakistan clearly in a civil war type of situation in the north and in the northwest, but I'm going to recommend uh, to listeners, if you haven't looked at a detailed map of the area in a while, uh, just for purposes of uh, explaining this, I'm going to look at a not-so-detailed map, but there are interesting stories unfolding in the south and west of Pakistan all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the Baluchistan region, which uh, has, of course, cultural ties to a similarly named region in Iran where there was a suicide attack against the elite Iranian forces Yeah, over the weekend. Over the weekend. Very unusual story. Very unusual. And, of course, the Iranian government accused the Israelis, British, and American government being behind it. But I have my doubts about that. I think that uh, yeah, we do our dastardly deeds from drones and uh, F-14s and whatnot. Um, well, a Pakistan-based uh, radical Sunni group yeah. uh, has already claimed... Uh, Jundala are their name. They've claimed uh, responsibility, and they seek independence for Iran's ethnic Baluchis. Sure. So this goes back to the comment you made just moments ago about um, Afghanistan's just a a hopeless mess, and that really the whole region is a, a series of hopeless messes all kind of snuggled into each other, and the whole question of where's the distinguishing line between Afghanistan and Pakistan or Pakistan and Iran. Yeah, and it's, I, it's, I checked the date on the Durand line. It was basically drawn in 1893 by the British deliberately to uh, divide the Pashto, Pashtun uh, people, mm-hmm. and that's why there's sort of complicated issue of a, a Pashtunistan is really what this is about, but obviously... Uh, both governments in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, are central governments are incredibly weak. Uh, these tribal areas where there's now been an, a sort of concerted offensive um, effort by the uh, Pakistani military uh, in response, by the way, to this uh, rash of uh, recent suicide bombings in various places around Pakistan because there's just been a rash of them recently. And one of them, of course— um this story appeared in the papers on uh, last Monday, a week ago today, about a weekend attack on a military stronghold uh, once considered impregnable. So while the Pakistani army is waging an air campaign and getting ready for an increased uh, boots-on-the-ground presence in the Waziristan Swat Valley area, they're being hit other places, sure. further south, uh, in the center of the country. This is a total civil war situation, as yeah. I see it. and it's, it's obviously part of a destabilization. And, of course, the timing of it is connected both to the anniversary, the eight-year anniversary of America's uh, st- formal start of the Afghan war uh, in terms of uh, sending boots on the ground as well as uh, missiles and bombs through the air. Um, I seem to remember the media going goo-goo-gaga over the daisy cutter bomb being used several times in the mountains. Mm-hmm. This 5,000-pound bomb that apparently 
if you're it's anywhere so cutely named yeah well if you're anywhere near it apparently you pretty much lose your hearing forever because it's uh, an incredible thing it's uh yeah, it's one of those dastardly uh, Cold War uh, creations of uh, the Pentagon and God knows who else, probably <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. Somewhere. Took the words right off of my... Uh... In a mine shaft. <laughs> Called the Daisy Cutter. I, I don't know if that's in, a, in a kind of a vicarious reference to the infamous Barry Goldwater. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Flower commercial. Um... <laughs> That might have been a forget-me-not. I, I don't yeah. remember, but I think it was a daisy. Cause it, daisies well, I believe are, it was a daisy. Daisies are kind of big and visible. Easy to photograph because the petals are so uh, yeah. distinguishable. And, of course, you know, the, the, the nursery rhyme uh, daisies probably were frequently used by uh, young children that were singing the song. Yes, indeed. Well... Uh, you know, I, I personally hope Obama does go cautiously. I think it's interesting that Joe Biden, of all people, is emerging as, as one of yeah, the more dovish advisors on this and that Hillary seems to be more allied with uh, uh, Robert Gates and McChrystal on uh, on escalating. And the unfortunate thing, as I've always pointed out, is Obama, unfortunately, for himself as, as well as America, though I think Obama has in interviews expressed... Um, a sense of realism about the entire situation. I don't think he's an ideologue. I think that he is at some point uh, going to realize that Afghanistan is a no-win situation for the United States and, and cut the losses. But he is probably, unfortunately, going to have to make a token escalation to both placate uh, the usual right-wing critics in the media and uh, in the Senate, you know, the McCain-Lieberman uh, well, I would say uh, Ir Irving Crystal, but I'll just say Bill Crystal, since he's uh, still alive, Ir Irving Crystal having passed away recently, along with William Sapphire and William F. Buckley. Uh, old guard. The right. old guard, right. Um, some of whom were very active in getting us involved in these uh, t types of wars uh, and— uh, yeah, the whole complicated history of that region is is beyond the comprehension of the American uh, government. It's interesting, by the way, that I just read a uh, very interesting uh, piece in the most recent edition of the New York Review of Books by James Bamford, uh, who's in Big Brother's database, that is a uh, – he uh, formerly worked in the NSA – and uh, he has an interesting article about the Library of Babel, or Babel, depending on your preference there. As in the Tower of Yeah, Babel. as in the Tower of, uh, characterized by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, which is a place where the collection of information is both infinite and at the same time monstrous, where the entire world's knowledge is stored, but not a single word of it is understood. I think it's perfect. Borges is great. Yeah. He's an all-time great. Once characterized the Falkland Wars as a war between two bald men over a comb. Anyway, this is uh, Bamford is, is sort of one of the guys who came in from the cold. He's written a number of very good books over the past decade about um, uh, the NSA, and he's reviewing a new book called The Secret History of the Untold history of the NSA, which has some very interesting revelations. 
But apparently, um, it's important to realize that the NSA has a uh, organ. It's an organization three times the size of the CIA, and was empowered during the Patriot Act uh, decade here to spy on Americans to an unprecedented degree. Anyway, they're building brand new facilities, according to uh, Matthew M. Aid, the author of this book, in Utah, somewhere out in the desert, and uh, in near San Antonio with plans uh, for another one. The San Antonio complex is nearly the size of the Alamo Dome that uh, U of M football fans know all about since we've played in the Alamo Bowl a number of times in the last decade. And the, the place in uh, Utah is fascinating. It says that a million square feet, the mammoth $2 billion structure will be one-third larger than the U.S. Capitol and will use the same amount of energy as every house in Salt Lake City combined. Anyway, the supercomputer um, will have data that could potentially store and get this number, 10 to the 24 bytes by 2015, a number called yottabytes, roughly the equivalent of about septillion pages of septillion pages of text. That's one to so many zeros I don't even want to go into it. 24, that's the scientific notation. If you got a Sweet Jesus. piece of pencil, pencil and paper there, you can write it down. And Bamford writes that uh, pages, the numbers beyond yottabytes have, haven't been named yet. <laughs> so that's what the NSA is working on. But anyway, uh, specifically on uh, the 9-11 issue, it's interesting. He, uh, he writes, Banford writes, before ni- uh, 9-11 attacks, the agency's coverage of Afghanistan was even worse than that of Iraq. The start of the war, the uh, NSA's principal listening post for the region did not have a single linguistic uh, professional proficient in Pashto or Dari, Afghanistan's two principal languages. Agency recruiters descended on Fremont, California, home of the country's largest population of Afghan expatriates, to build up a cadre of translators, only to have most candidates rejected by the agency's overparanoid security experts. There you have it. <laughs> All your billions of septabytes yeah. uh, aren't going to help you at all if you don't speak the language. And, of course, it's so basic. This review is interesting because there's a variety of historical events throughout uh, the history of the Cold War uh, regarding failed uh, aspects of NSA and also s- successful aspects of the NSA. They go into the Korean War. They show that MacArthur was, uh, uh, he uh, didn't seem to have a Korean language dictionary uh, at uh, his intelligence posting over there in the 38th parallel. I was also interested, by the way, on the little paragraph about the KAL-07 bombing in 1983. It says, the agency, I'm quoting Banford here, recorded the words of the Russian fighter pilot and his ground controllers as he shot down kal in 1983, although the agency knew that the Russians had accidentally mistakenly hit hit the plane for a potentially hostile U.S. aircraft, the Reagan administration nevertheless deliberately spun the intercepts to make it seem that the fighter pilot knew all along that it was a passenger jet, infuriating NSA officials 
quote, the White House's selective release of the most salacious of the NSA material concerning the shoot-down set off a firestorm of criticism inside NSA, writes Aid. It was not the first time, nor would it be the last, that the uh, NSA's product was used for political purposes. Very good book on the KAL mischief by uh, Seymour Hersh, yeah, by the way. Uh, I've read that, and I actually haven't thought about the KAL thing in a long time, but it's kind of to hear it in that context um, and to hear the NSA's response to it uh, is reminiscent of the way that the CIA was actually compelled to react the way it, it had to uh, at the Bush administration's manipulation and misuse of presentable or questionable uh, data uh, for use in uh, instigating the <clears throat> most recent uh, debacle, but uh, but also reflects back on Reagan's willingness to uh, trip-start war with Russia. I mean, that was the sort of vibe that you got from the uh, Alexander Haggs and the uh, the the team of Reaganoids there that uh, were just so anxious for America to prove itself in a hot war against the Soviet Union. Well, and they loved the conspiracy theory about the KAL thing because I think there was some prominent conservative. I want to say his name was Larry McDonald that was on the plane, right. and yeah, it was it was all so ludicrous at the time that I knew there was something fishy about the whole incident and. <laughs> remained skeptical about it and understood why the Soviets shot the plane down. Um, of course, they didn't shoot down Matthias Roost when he seemed to have floated into Red Square uh, in a very small airplane that m- sort of resembled that recent silver balloon that we saw. Falcon! Falcon, come on! Falcon! Oh, boy. So anyway, uh, I recommend this article. It's not very long. It's in the most recent edition of the New York Review of Books because it's got a lot of interesting Cold War history attached to the books and also some interesting problems with these uh, with the uh, um, uh, new uh, centers that are being set up. It's interesting, by the way, that they're being set up in red states uh, to very oh. prominent red states, Utah and Texas. And um, the supercomputers measured by the acre have an estimated $70 million of annual electricity bills for its headquarters. And uh, the agency has been browning out, which is the reason for locating the new data centers in uh, Utah and Texas. This is the Fort Meade problem. So uh, it's interesting because this is one of those behind-the-scenes thing, And it also demonstrates, once again, from the, the tone of the article, that... Um, it's not always the in- technology. You need to have human intelligence on the ground. It's interesting that Saddam Hussein banned the use of cell phones early on uh, in the 1990s. And uh, as Banford writes, that it left only occasional low-level troop communications. And virtually the NSA knew nothing about what was going on in Iraq uh, throughout the decade. And hence the concocted... Uh, NIE estimate in 2002 uh, that was uh, splashed around Congress and the media about the eminent threat of Saddam Hussein and mushroom clouds and all the propaganda that was used by the Bush administration to start uh, the disastrous war uh, known as uh, Iraq II. 
Well, and I don't know if the book uh, will be able to answer these questions, but uh, does anyone even know how big the NSA's budget is, generally speaking? I mean, is it like a black budget like the CIA's? It's larger than the CIA's, uh, from my understanding, because of the technology um, issues. Um, and, and obviously they have a lot of analysts. And certainly there's a reason to be um, <clears throat> to have some, cap some of these capabilities. But I think we've learned over the recent uh, years that the United States was uh, intercepting telephone calls from UN uh, officials during the Iraq debate, for instance. Oh, right. They were trying to monitor the outcome of the vote, and when they realized that we weren't going to win on the Security Council, so hence the Iraq war from the beginning has been illegal in any sense of the word. The United States unilaterally uh, had never had any UN permission to go in there. Right. There were no votes, there were abstentions, and there were uh, some yes votes, but it was... Uh, an overwhelming defeat for the United States. Now, the Afghan war, on the other hand, uh, whether you agree with it or not, there at least is a legal basis for the Afghan war. It was approved by the UN, and there is also this vague uh, involvement involving NATO. Uh, NATO was invoked, I think, inappropriately, but it was invoked as a justification for NATO to become involved in uh, Afghanistan, and indeed NATO has, uh, I believe the number, the last number I saw was 68,000 troops 68, in Afghanistan, and the uh, new commander-slash-general of NATO has, has advocated escalating those numbers, presumably in coordination with a American escalation. And... Uh, <coughs> We'll have to wait and see what happens. My guess is that um, Obama is going to split the uh, split the baby in half, so to speak, and there's going to be a mild token increase in troops, but not 40,000, and uh, he'll uh, kick the can down the road. Yeah, apparently the uh, Afghani uh, ambassador to Washington has already made an announcement that Obama will commit 40,000 troops. Of course, the administration is saying, um, no, we haven't decided yet. Right. But um, he says, the indications are that the president will completely comply with the demands of General McChrystal. Okay, dude. I don't think it's going to be 40,000 troops. And I think that the, one of the other reasons that be, became clear over the weekend why Obama is delaying any decision, he's being criticized in some quarters for not deciding. He's not the he's, decider. He, he's, he's the not decider. <laughs> he's the ditherer. I think that's been the word that they use. He's the ditherer. And I was sort of like, well, what's the rush? And the strategy in Afghanistan changed when he became president. I mean, despite problems, yeah, that's it's clearly a much more credible uh, strategic approach to Afghanistan that the Bush administration completely ignored from the get-go. I mean, we didn't have enough troops from day one. And, of course, we now know that they were more interested in invading Iraq for obvious uh, geopolitical remaking the Middle East, uh, oil security concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there isn't a significant amount of oil involved in the Afghanistan dispute. Um, obviously, we said from the beginning here on Gray Matters, because I actually was listening to some 
01 tapes recently uh, that Pakistan is the key. That's where all this mischief is going on. And this murky relationship between ISI and rogue elements of ISI and Karzai and the whole complicated tribal nature of Afghan society is beyond the understanding of American um, 